0: Lester Green is Out on the Front Lines with Joel Eisenberg, Hollywood screenwriter, producer, author, and partner in television development group, Council Tree Productions with Steve Hillard. Joel Eisenberg, welcome to Out on the Front Lines. It is a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. you?
1: (laughs) I'm good. I'm good.
0: This is an honor. I'm serious. I'm a huge fan. I've been following you for a while. I call it stalking, but thank you for doing this.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. Well, the stalking worked. It did? <laughs> the door opened. I'm on your show now. So all the stalking, you know, whatever, it's 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 hey. all good. But you didn't stalk me. Look, I've been stalked before. <laughs> this is nothing. This is nothing. Really? Yeah, seriously. Um, isn't it scary no, though a when you have... story, but yeah, no, I've had a stalker.
0: Really? Yeah. Can we, can we hear a, a quick story?
1: Ladies and gentlemen, do you see what happens when we come into Lester's room here? <laughs> um, you know, basically without really getting into it, it's uh, someone who I dated and someone that, uh, you know, we broke up and then uh-huh. she started slipping notes under my door at all hours in the morning and. <laughs> it just kind of went on and on from there. I can give you all the gory details you want because I did say that nothing is off limits you and did. nothing is off limits.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, do you want her shoe size? Her, her, height, <laughs> or her
0: You know you what? It reminds me. You, you ever see that movie Fatal Attraction?
1: Yeah. I just watched it actually a few weeks ago. Are you is, it's
0: a classic. I love that
1: movie i watched it because i was flipping channels on hbo after spangoolie was over spangoolie is a chicago horror host if you don't know who hosts like old horror movies saturday nights at like eight o'clock in la okay Uh, he's based out of chicago though but we we get the transmission and so it's always like bride of frankenstein werewolf of london you know the wolfman whatever and uh just flipping the channels it's like okay not that my favorite star trek episode was on after and after that, it was Fatal Attraction. I'm like, okay, I'll watch Fatal Attraction. I haven't seen it in 150 years. <laughs> Hasn't changed a bit. But yeah, I've had one of them. So we'll just leave it there. But I mean, if you want to ask more, you can. But yeah. You
0: know. No, I feel like you're a walking encyclopedia because you watch everything. I was on your page the other day and you were talking about this documentary called Nail in the Coffin. Mm. I watched it with Vampiro the Wrestler. Mm-hmm amazing story mm-hmm. I couldn't believe I already know about wrestling because I used to watch it but I didn't know I never heard of him until that documentary
1: Vampiro was a wrestler who was in WCW which was Ted Turner's league which was Vince McMahon's competition back about 20 years ago yeah and he uh was not really that much of an entity in WCW but in Mexico he was almost a living legend. And uh, he's had a lot of health issues, a lot of struggles. And he's been trying to develop a relationship with his child, his daughter. And that, that documentary just knocked me on my ass. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not going to go and preach about pro wrestling, but I've been watching this stuff since I was like six. I
0: love wrestling too.
1: Okay. See, I'm 57 years old. And my wife, by the way, hates wrestling. I brought her to Staples and she wasn't going to talk to me again after that. But that's a whole other thing. But uh, I've always given these guys credit for, you know, you could say it's predetermined and fixed and fake and all that stuff, but these bumps don't feel good. They hurt. I've gotten in the ring with some of these guys, it hurts like a mother. And I used to write for wrestling magazines back in the 80s. I was a special education teacher, and I was supplementing my special education teaching income by writing for professional wrestling magazines in the 80s and early 90s. And, you know, they, they travel from town to town, like hours and hours and hours on a plane. After taking all of these bumps, they'll take the bumps, they'll, they'll get hurt. Some of them start going into drugs because they need to deal with the pain and all of this type of thing. Some of them go onto the steroids so they can have the cosmetic look. The bottom line is so many of them do it for two reasons. Most of them do it for two reasons. Number one, to get over with a very large crowd. And number two, to make money. And the thing is, I don't care what anybody says, but that lifestyle and and taking all those bumps and the, doing all those flips and all that stuff, the mat's not made of rubber. It does hurt. It's, yeah. canned, it's like a boxing ring. It hurts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the guys die young because the lifestyle is something that cannot be sustained for a period of time. And this documentary was actually uh, fascinating to me. So anybody who's not a wrestling fan, I would recommend watching it because at the end of the day, it was a film about a father and a daughter. Yes. And it was their relationship in this kind of circus world that he is involved in. And it's just, uh, it was poignant. Yeah, it
0: it was, but I couldn't understand why he couldn't just stop wrestling. If you realize that it's hurting you and it's, it's killing your body, why not just say, okay, Let me step away from it. It's almost like a drug. Do you know what I mean? When you become so engulfed with wrestling or whatever you do, you can't stop doing it.
1: I know a lot of the men and women, the performers who who wrestle, and they tell me when they get out in front of a crowd of tens of thousands of people, it's like euphoria. It overtakes them. A lot of the performers were broken in their prior lives. They've had Mm -hmm. issues or They, you know, had things going on that were very unorthodox in their lives. And wrestling was the validation that they needed, that they craved. So when you have 10, 20, 30,000, 40,000 people standing and cheering or booing, whatever, it's a reaction that what they're doing in their job is eliciting a response. And they're just doing it. But it's like retirement. How many boxers have come out of retirement and gone back? retirement tyson over tyson i mean over and over and over again i mean in pro wrestling there's a wrestler terry funk yes love him okay now terry Sorry. has he- terry has real health issues now yeah but this guy was retiring every other week i remember he was crazy he was a crazy yeah.
0: wrestler yeah he would torture yeah. himself he, i remember the matches with him and Rick Flair oh my goodness classic but <laughs> so you know oh wow you watched Terry okay so you know He's wrestling old.
1: Oh, come on, man. Shoot. Okay, so here's my thing. Here's my thing, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Do I watch it? Okay, so I watched my first, like I said, at six. Superstar Billy Graham versus Bruno Sammartino was my first match. Then I moved to Colorado for a few years, and I got into AWA, which had a different group of people, Crusher, Bruiser, and all this type of thing. Moved back to New York, started getting back involved with what was then the WWWF. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then we went into the rock and wrestling connection with Cindy Lauper and Mr. T and Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper is still the best talker ever in the history of that business. Wow!
0: Yeah, you think?
1: Oh hell yeah! Hell yeah! Over the mm-hmm. Rock. Okay, so that's real close, right? You want to know why I picked Piper? I'll tell you wow. why. Why? Wow. All right. Anybody listening to this? We didn't know you didn't know we'd get onto this wrestling. I movie. didn't know either,
0: but I love. That's wrestling. okay. Oh, this is no, it's show. all
1: good. If you watch. On YouTube, which sometimes I do because it puts me to sleep. If you watch on YouTube some of these old matches and some of these promos and stuff, yeah, okay, this is where I'm gonna get in trouble with you now because you're gonna, you're gonna like want to like kill me after this. Mm -hmm. I think John Cena emasculated The Rock in the promos, and I'm not a Cena fan. I don't like, I'm not a Cena fan at all. I can't watch any of his matches, right. (laughs) But when they had those two WrestleMania matches and they were doing promos yeah. and Cena walks in the room and he goes, you're not fooling them just like you're not fooling me with all your promo written all over your arm. And the Rock, oh, it's on YouTube. And the Rock, he looked at him, got face-to-face. He was really pissed because Cena broke down the third wall. Yeah. And the Rock started stuttering after that. He couldn't pick up. What? I didn't see that. You know, it's on YouTube. Just watch Rock Cena promos and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. As soon as Cena said The Rock, and he did, because The Rock writes some of his promos on his forearm. And as soon as Cena pointed that out in front of the crowd, The Rock lost himself. So to me, Roddy Piper, okay. a lot of his stuff was improvised, and he never got lost. He wrote a lot of it down, but he also did a lot on the cuff. But he, he, never, he never got lost in it. He, yeah. was a, he was like a nut when he did his interviews, but he never lost track. Whereas The Rock, when I saw him that vulnerable, that one time, it's the only time I've ever seen him vulnerable. Otherwise, i put The Rock and, and Piper neck and neck. Yeah. But for this purpose, I he would still he? say that Piper is the best. And then you went to the Attitude Era and all this and what happened today and AEW and everything else and ECW years ago. So, yeah, I've been watching this stuff for ages.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I was on YouTube a couple days ago and I watched Hulk Hogan versus The Ultimate (laughs) Warrior the first time around. I don't know if you remember that match. Yeah, oh, you know you're wrestling. You really do. But I remember I cried after that match because I was such a huge Hulk Hogan fan. And when he lost that match, I felt like, wow, Hulk Hogan's not invincible anymore. Uh, Ultimate Warrior made him look human.
1: That's interesting. You know, it's funny because the next year I was at WrestleMania 7 in Los Angeles in person. Okay. And they had the Ultimate Warrior versus Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. And if Randy Savage lost, he'd have to retire. Randy Savage lost, but then Elizabeth... Who Savage had turned against in favor of sensational Sherry, Queen Sherry. I don't know if you remember. I remember her the black hair, of oh, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sherry, okay. Sherry. Come on, please. Sherry, Sherry, oh, there you go. You know, I know oh, my wrestling.
0: But... I grew up on this stuff. My father Okay, was... so
1: Elizabeth came running in the ring and she pushed Sherry off of, you know, Macho Man. She was attacking him and Macho Man and Elizabeth made up and the whole freaking arena was crying. Everybody had tears in their eyes like it was yeah. real. Macho I, I Man don't... took her and put her on his shoulder, all that stuff. So anyway, right, right.
0: Crazy. But what weren't they a real couple though in real life?
1: They were, so but Elizabeth prior was... to that, prior to that angle, they were already split up. Oh. So they're already split up in real life, and then they had that angle and, and they, they, they was... oh yeah. So no, it's an interesting world.
0: Yeah, yeah. And she left him. Did uh, Elizabeth leave Macho Man for Luger? Is that true?
1: For Luger, exactly. And then oh. And then, you know, Luger and Elizabeth. Elizabeth died. And yeah,
0: she died. I remember that. You know what
1: happened to, Elizabeth, to uh, Luger.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, Luger. Like,
1: uh, she spires. was one of my
0: favorite wrestlers.
1: I was reading something by Mick Foley yesterday. Foley was saying that Luger deserves to be in the WWE Hall of Fame. He's not in? Luger's not, no. What? Yeah, go on to WrestleZone.com. Dominic, I'm giving a free plug, Russellzone.com. Dominic DeAngelo, I'm on there every fucking day. Oh, sorry, I don't know if we can curse on your show. No, it's fine, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm yeah, from Brooklyn, won. so pardon me. You want. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but the thing is, uh, yeah, Mick Foley wrote something that Lex Luger needs to be in the Hall of Fame.
0: So why isn't he in the Hall of Fame? I'm just curious. He's a legend. I don't know.
1: I don't know. What I want wow. Vince to do is I want Vince to do the right thing And to give my buddy, one of the the best friends I ever had, Shad Gaspard, the Warrior Award in the Hall of Fame this year. That's what I want. Shad died, he drowned last year, saving his son from drowning. He was a uh, big tag team with the WWE for about 10 years. He went out with his son and his wife into uh, the beach in Venice and they got caught under a riptide. And the rescuers came and he was saying, Save my kids! Save my kids! So they saved his kid, and they came back for him, and he had already drowned. Oh no! And his body washed up on shore a few days later, and all this. I spoke at his funeral. That was that was a tough time. But Vince does the Warrior Award every year, so I'm hoping that they they give yeah, it to Shad. Exactly.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Where they remember, you know they they gave him like a nice obituary thing on the show and all this. But anyway, I don't want to get depressing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I, a yeah. show. Man. But, well, yeah. The but- Green show. I don't want to get depressing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, definitely not. But I I read somewhere that you wrestled on the JV team. Is that right? Is
1: that how you started? Boy, research. My God. Listen, I was digging. (laughs) Yeah. Because I love wrestling.
0: So I was trying to find that angle. Like, why is he into wrestling so much? What was it about? I
1: was a high school wrestler.
0: So did you want to do that professionally? Was that the dream? Growing up?
1: No. You know what? I tell you this. I'm innately a shy guy. Even today, no, I'm serious. Even today, you know, I go to parties and stuff because I have to. But if my wife isn't with me, I always feel uncomfortable. swear to God. Okay? Mm -hmm. And um, I used to watch wrestling early on because of their promos and they're speaking to the camera and doing all their stuff. And it helped me with my confidence. I knew I could act my way through it. Oh, nice. It was that psychological thing too. So now, you know, if you want your, you know, a therapist to come on and check my head, that's all good too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of surprised because you seem like the outgoing type because I was reading that mm-hmm. you got an interview, an exclusive interview with Dr. D, and I'm saying
1: well, He's one of my closest friends in Brooklyn.
0: Oh, he's a friend. Oh.
1: I used to do bounty hunting with him.
0: I I know, I read that too, and he was telling you got a duck. You got a duck whenever whenever the bullets start flying.
1: That's right. That was an interesting story too, just in a nutshell. David Schultz was a wrestler who was blacklisted from the WWE for several reasons. Most uh, notoriously, he slapped reporter John Stossel of 2020 fame on both sides of the head when John Stossel, backstage in Madison Square Garden, said, I think this is fake. And David goes, you think this is fake? How's that? You think this is fake? Psh, how's that? That's a right-hand slap. And, you know, Vince McMahon had to pay the insurance company a lot of money. And then David got uh, apparently into some trouble with Mr. T at an arena. So Vince fired him. He was blackballed from the business as being a legitimate tough guy. And he went into the bounty hunting business. And he had asked me, uh, well, let me rewind. Before, when he got into the bounty hunting business, I went to one of the wrestling magazines I used to write for wrestling world, I think. And I said, I'm thinking of interviewing Dr. D David Schultz. He goes, why would you want to interview him? He's a maniac. And I'm like, that's why I want to interview him. I mean, nobody else has touched him. Let me interview him. Right. So they said, if you can get David Schultz on the phone and get this interview, you got it. (laughs) I I got him on the phone and I told him I'm going to bring a camera crew and they're going to you know, shoot us and all this type of thing and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, okay, just one thing. I go, what? He goes, you're going to have to get in the ring with me. And I'm like, oh, shit. So we met at a gym, Quest Passariello Gym in Orange, Connecticut. And we're talking about 1988, maybe, maybe a little later, somewhere around there. And uh, I met him over there and I brought my uh, one of my buddies, the Haiti kid who was I don't know if you remember the Haiti kid. He was a midget wrestler at the time. They stopped using small people. No. Back in the early days of WrestleMania. This is actually before Hogan versus Warrior. I got in the ring with David Schultz, and I was thrown all over, knocked in my ass, the whole deal. Went outside, threw up, came back in, took some more, and uh, he developed a little bit of respect for me. And then I got home, and I get a call from my photographer. He goes, Joel, I got some really bad news. I go, what's the matter? He goes... I forgot to take the lens cap off. Oh, no. I'm like, you gotta f- oh no. you be kidding me. Yeah. You gotta be kidding me. So what happened was I called David back the next day. I said, Look, I'm the last person in the world who's looking for more punishment. But here's the truth. He goes, I go, the lens cap was wasn't on, wasn't off. It was, it was, I mean, the lens cap was still on. Yeah. No pictures. I gotta do it again. And he laughed. He goes, Well, hell, you know the rules. He goes, come on over. I'll toss you around a bit more. Thanks. So we did exactly that. And uh, we got the pictures, got the article. Everything was fine. Calls me up one day. He goes, you're the first person who's like really kind of, you did it.
0: You didn't
1: get in the ring with me. You didn't judge me because, you know, there are two sides to every story. And there are two sides to mine. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. And by the way, I was thinking, You know, I'm doing bounty hunting now. As you know, maybe we should go on some rides together. And that's how we started becoming friends. And my first thing, he's trying to, like, get me going. He goes, I have one piece of advice for you. And I go, what? He goes, if bullets come flying through the window, duck.
0: (coughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. Wow. But, see, that's my point, though. Somebody like that isn't shy. That takes guts to get in the ring with that guy. It takes guts to try to get that interview with him. So, to me, you always had that innate ability to just – be outgoing and dangerous in a sense. No, that's what I see.
1: Guts, guts or stupidity. One or the other.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I almost feel like, no, good. I'm sorry.
1: No, 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 I'm good.
0: Okay. No, I feel like in this business, sometimes you just got to take chances. You got to just put yourself out well, there.
1: Yeah. Look, here's the thing. I'm a writer producer, right? I always wanted to write. I produce because I have a big mouth and I could sell. <laughs> And, you know, I used to telemarket every job, everything in existence. You know, I've telemarketed medical billing supplies and just everything, right? Bad videos at the time when VCRs were out and stuff like this. And I realized it wasn't going to be what I knew but who I met along the way that was going to make the difference for me. And I had to act my way through it all. Even when I did the wrestling interviews, I had to act my way through it. Yeah. But I put myself in the positions because I was able to sell myself. And I always tell filmmakers, sell yourself. I tell writers, sell yourself. Because people want to do business with people they like and people they trust. Sell yourself. Don't make yourself into more than you are. Talk about your vulnerabilities and everything too. Wow! But sell yourself. Why should you do business with me as opposed to the other guy? Uh-huh. And all that old experience just kind of built and built and built. And yet, you know when I was happiest before the uh, – pandemic i was happiest at starbucks at starbucks at five o'clock in the morning writing
0: wow i like that
1: with like my buds and my ears
0: yeah and let me just get this straight so in terms of writing because i read somewhere that you have to have your earplugs in you gotta have nbc going you gotta be on spotify listening to music how do, you, how do you write like that how, how with all that noise to me that's noise
1: i'll tell you what I ran the LA Marathon about 15 years ago, right? And I trained the entire year for it. I only did it once. And I had to wear sunglasses at four o'clock in the morning when I sit out. Why the hell would I wear sunglasses when it's pitch black outside? Well, I also had my Sony Walkman at the time. So I had my music in my ears, my sunglasses, my baseball cap, my hoodie, four o'clock in the morning. Why do I do that? Because it got me into my own little world. Why do I listen to my earpods? My Why are they always in my ears? Why do I have Spotify on? Why is the TV running in the background? as I'm sitting here supposed to be focusing on all this stuff? Because it puts me in my own little world. It centers me from everything outside. Wow. And if I'm centered from everything outside, for me, I find that I could focus better.
0: Wow, I like that. Okay, I might have to try that. But I guess that's to each his own, right? It's not... It doesn't work for everybody. No,
1: it doesn't work for everybody. Look, I have attention deficit disorder. It's never been diagnosed, but I taught at risk kids for 10 years. And I, my ADD is off the charts at times. So yeah. I just need to kind of focus in.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, you said you were a special eds teacher,
1: right? I was for 10 years, yeah. yeah. I, I haven't, it's been, uh, I stopped about 17, 15, 16, 17 years ago, somewhere there. But I talk gang kids, severely emotionally disturbed kids, drug addicts, alcoholics, um, even autistic kids. But, yeah, I did that for 10 years.
0: Did you ever fear for your life dealing with those people? Because you just never know. These people can be unpredictable sometimes, and it can be a scary job.
1: I've written about this. I mean, I was physically assaulted by a student. A couple of things. So the last job I had was at Cecil B. DeMille, the director, his old ranch in Selmar. They converted into a school that's no longer in existence called Hathaway. And when I was over at Hathaway, interestingly, the student who I most bonded with had a swastika cut in his arm. He was a former neo-Nazi, and I'm a Jewish guy. And what happened was for whatever reasons forces whatever we were actually we started bonding and we stayed in touch after he went into the army came out he credited me big credit for straightening him out ultimately he wasn't straightened out he went back on meth he was one of my wife and i to adopt him he at the end spent five years in prison holding up a woman an old elderly woman at an atm and then one day I'm on Facebook and I'm going into my Facebook messages. Joel, did to hear about Daniel? I'm like, no, what happened? Uh, you may want to click on this link. Daniel was shot by two cops the night before because he initiated a gunfight on the freeway, one of the freeways here in L.A. So I bring this up because when he, using him as an example, was really trying to get himself clean and you know really apologize and try to get his arm clean from his like neo-nazi past and all this type of thing he was a great kid he was a great kid he had a lot of trouble a lot of trouble and if you knew his family situation and his environment and all this type of thing you start understanding that there are reasons why people are like they are why they behave like they behave Right. and one day in class There was a kid who was like a kid. He was like six foot three and he started pacing back and forth in the middle of the classroom, stood up. I'm sitting behind my desk, threw a couple of desks around. The other kids kind of lined up against the wall. They didn't want to get hurt. And uh, he said, say one thing more to me, motherfucker. I'm going to punch you in the jaw. And I'm like, you got to sit your ass down. Say one thing more to me, motherfucker. You're going to get punched in the jaw. I'm telling you sit down, Robert. Anyway, long and short of it is he punched me in the jaw. And as soon as he punched me in the jaw, the kid I just told you about, the former neo-Nazi, ran right outside the room and said, I need crisis here now. And crisis came in before the kid was like all over me.
0: What's crisis?
1: And crisis intervention. You have, at schools like that, you have crisis interventionists who oh. are trained professionals to de-escalate physical situations. So look at them like cops. They're not cops, but look at them like you know that type of thing mm-hmm. anyway so long and short of it is then that kid felt really bad because he felt that of all people i was a guy who tried working with him and not all that stuff and i pressed charges i pressed charges to teach him a lesson so at the end of the day we're sitting in a police van he's in the van and i go and join him i tell the cop i want to talk to him this is when the cops did come mm-hmm. i said i want to, i want to talk to him i said robert can we talk he goes, I, I don't know why I did that to you. I, I can't forgive myself. He's crying. He goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I go, I press charges on you, man, because I got to teach you a lesson. You can't do this. It's. I got lucky. I got lucky because I'm not supposed to hit you back, and I wouldn't hit you back. But at the same time, if I restrained you, you would have probably broke my restraints. You're that much bigger than me. If I was somebody else, you may have hurt them real bad, real seriously. So I had to file charges against you. I took that option. He goes, no, and I'm glad you did. I appreciate it. I don't know what happened to the kid. I used to visit him now and again, but uh, we lost contact. The point is that it's not an easy job. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's not a safe job because there are safeguards put in place, but the school systems need more safeguards. Yeah, And stuff like this should not happen in a school.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of an article that you wrote on medium.com and you were talking about well you are good i'm trying i'm trying joel how long have you been doing this well i just started my show when the pandemic hit i figured i'm a bus driver i'm out on the front lines let me just start a show called out on the front lines where i just talk to people about the times that we're dealing with and it's just been evolving and growing so I'm grateful to just be doing it. I love talking to people. I went to school for journalism, so obviously I'm really inquisitive and I love just listening to people's stories. But I didn't expect the show to really go on this long. So, I'm yeah. having a blast. <laughs> Good. I'm having a blast. But yeah, you wrote an article in on medium.com and you were talking about goodwill hunting and you were talking about the Joker and you were mm-hmm. talking about these characters who are just very different and outside of the box. And you were talking about how talented these people are. Cause I always grew up seeing the person who was off to the left as, oh, he's a freak or he's crazy or he's demonic. But those people are generally very gifted. And I wanted to read this quote. This is what you wrote. You said, if only others of his gifts we're so fortunate to realize that help does exist and not everyone is intimidated by genius in the real world. Many so tormented would be better off." And I said, wow, mm-hmm. that really spoke to me. Cause I always just looked at those kind of people as being special, but not in a good way though. I just saw them as, oh, he's a freak. Mm-hmm. You know, what's his problem? Why isn't he doing what everybody else is doing? So I wanted to ask you in terms of that, do you do you gravitate towards characters like that? Mm-hmm. Is that what you look for? Because you seem mm-hmm. like the kind of guy who is doing his own thing. You're on your own program. You don't really follow the group. No. <laughs> they like no. <laughs> no.
1: Yeah. Because, you know, it's it's one of these things, you know, early on it was like. Do I want to be a person on the baseball field or do I want to be another person in the stands? Mm. I want to be a person on the field.
0: You want to be a player.
1: I want to be a player. So the thing is, look, I've done a lot of business with a lot of people. And sometimes it went really, really well. Sometimes it went south. Right. And the one thing I've always tried to do is be totally open-minded, not judge anybody. Am I always successful at that? No, I'm not. Do I try to be? Yeah, I try to be. I'm not perfect either. People could judge me left and right. They could take this interview and go, God, this guy needs help. You know? Yeah. He starts out talking about wrestling then bonding with a neo-Nazi kid and he's Jewish and this and that and the other and blah, blah, blah and all this stuff. Yeah. And he likes the and he likes... I think The Joker is the best movie ever made about mental illness. I think uh, Good Will Hunting, Robin Williams was the best portrayal of a you know, of a therapist I've ever seen in my entire life and just very sensitive and the dialogue was totally, totally straight. I love that movie. The thing is with me, it's like, you know, look, I take the thought that we all go around once and the difference makers are the ones who don't follow the crowd. Yes. The difference makers are the ones that stand out. So I'm 57 years old. I figure I got a few good years left, I hope. (laughs) And I just want to try to make as much of a difference in those few years as I can while providing for my family, you know, and all this type of thing. Mm -hmm. My family being my wife and my four-legged hairy daughter. I don't have any kids. But with me, it's all about blazing my own trail. And I hope I inspire others along the way to blaze their own trails and not be... So um, not be hanging on everybody else for their success. Mm. Fall down, fail as much as you have to fail, and pick yourself back up. Like I love that little speech that Rocky did at the end of Rocky Balboa, not in the end, but in the middle of Rocky Balboa with his son. You know, mm. I used to hold you right here. He goes, and he, you know, it's not how many times yeah. you get hit, but yeah. how many times you get know, all that stuff, you yeah. know, to get back up. And he's right, you know. The thing is, I've learned that multi-millionaires, multi-millionaire celebrities, I know a lot of them, and a lot of them are friends, and several of them are miserable, because it's not about the money. If they can't work, and they can't express themselves through their art, and there are a few who are suffering ageism now, or you know whatever, they're miserable. Yeah. So it's not all about the dollars, it's about the art for a lot of people too, and for me, it's about the art. And with the art, I want to help pay for things as opposed to it being about the money first.
0: Right. Yeah. I saw on Clubhouse, you have your own club writing for your life. And I think yeah. you touched on that subject, ageism, did you? Or did you... Yeah,
1: we did a room on ageism. Actually, we had one of the, um, we had the career longevity committee chairperson for the Writers Guild. and We had Glenn Mazzara, who was a former showrunner for The Walking Dead. And we did a show based on ageism. Look, there are so many isms. There's racism, there's ageism, there's sexism, there's, Um, I mean, everything. And the thing is, we live in a society where all this exists. We can't deny that it, it, you know, that it doesn't exist. Look, it's interesting. Most, for whatever reason, this is just the way it worked out for me. Most of my closest friends are black, right? It's just the way it is. And the thing is that when I speak to my closest black friends, and Bill Duke and I have had this conversation a lot, I've never had the talk because – I'm looked at as a white guy. So it's like I'm driving my car. I haven't had to like if a cop pulls me over, put my hand on the wheel, answer every question, all that type of thing. It's not part of who I am. So I try to recognize everybody's differences and similarities as humans. And I bring this up just in the context of we're all trying and we're all In competition, why do we have to be in competition? Why can't we help each other? And that helping each other goes to everything, politically, socially, everything. Not everybody's going to be on the same page. I'm very verbal about my political opinions. I'm not going to be on the same page as a lot of people. And a lot of people, you know, agree with me. So, you know, the thing is, though, it doesn't have to be this all the time. And all these isms that stop people from attaining their dream career or whatever the situation these are things that if you blaze your own trail and stop counting on the rest of the world you can get that much further ahead and for me what's been personally gratifying is like I mentioned Bill Duke Bill Duke is Bill Duke and I are like brothers do you know who Bill is?
0: of course Bill
1: Duke and he's directed a ton of movies and a rage in Harlem and just a bunch of stuff yeah and we were working on a Joe Lewis type project together. A Joe Lewis project together. Joe Lewis was a former heavyweight Max champion. Smelling, yeah. Max Smelling is that a good man? Yeah. So uh, Bill was saying, "Well, this is what's going on in the experience in terms of you know black culture. So if you put this instead of this, it's not going to work. You know, you need to be honest with yourself about black culture. I'm like, well, tell me, teach me, wow. educate me." And I think we all need to learn from each other because once we do, I think what happens is there's so much that we can sort of eradicate in terms of fear, fear of the other, moving forward, everybody moving forward in their careers and so forth and so on. Awesome. And just yeah,
0: remember. yeah. No, absolutely. Is that project coming out, that Joe Lewis versus Matt? That project
1: is stuck in development hell. and has been stuck in development hell for 28 goddamn years. Right. Spike Lee has been trying to get his off the ground, too, for just as long.
0: Oh, really? We haven't
1: haven't been able to get this thing going.
0: Yeah, and I read that you wrote the draft, the original draft, 25 years ago.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let me ask you a question. Are you amazed when writers say to you, oh, I wrote that feature screenplay in five days? no because the minute somebody says that people look at them like oh it must be garbage because there's no way you can write a quality screenplay in five days people talk about "Oh, it takes years to write a great screenplay or it takes months and months what's your philosophy on that
1: it's some people can do it period um i don't know what's mythology and what's real but stallone was supposed to have knocked out rocky in like you know less than a week or a month or something Um, I know there was a woman who wrote Romancing the Stone 2, I believe, and she insists she knocked it out in like three or four days. First draft, first draft, not necessarily the shooting draft, but there are people who can do it. Yeah. I've done scripts in in a minimal number of days.
0: Really? A feature screenplay? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: That's
0: impressive.
1: Yeah. I I don't think it was very good. See, that's the thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you can do it, right? But it, it, yeah.
1: Then you have to polish it and edit it and this and that. But the thing is, I've knocked out first drafts in a few days.
0: Yeah, but see, that's why I can't write a screenplay because I don't have the patience to do another draft and then another draft. And then an- I've heard people say, yeah, I've done 40 drafts. I'm like, what? 40 drafts? Yeah. But one project, after I write it once, okay, that's it. You ask me to do a rewrite, all right, I'll do one more rewrite. That's about it. I can't keep – I don't have the patience, so I respect writers.
1: Let me ask you a question, though. Mm. If someone said here's $50,000. I get it. I can, get it. Can you write another script? Can you write I yeah, I year? could. I could.
0: I could.
1: Okay. Because <laughs> here's the thing. when when you're like in the union, like when you're in the writers guild feel, and yeah. this type of thing, they don't want you to write keep writing for free. You know, you get it to a company and if they want to see more more drafts from you, they want those they drafts to be paid for.
0: Yeah, they
1: pay. Yeah. So then the company has to pay for those drafts and you know, there are minimums and so forth. So Good point, Yeah. Look, you know, I, I paid my dues, and writing for your life, I didn't pull out of my backside. Writing for your life is I had to write my way out of some real sticky situations, man, when I was coming up. I almost lost my apartment. I couldn't pay my, my bills, and this and that. And I almost lost my car, all that stuff, more than once. And then ultimately, the scales kind of started tilting because the more seeds I put on, the scales kind of came, went like this. Yeah. And that's what happened.
0: Wow. So, writing for your life. Is not just some term. This is something that you really live by. Yeah. Wow. I've
1: gotten myself out of trouble by writing for my life.
0: <laughs> I like it because there's a saying that goes, "You fight for your life." You know, fighting for your life. So I like it's it.
1: A, it's all the same thing. Wow. It's all the same thing. But you know, I have a uh, a fake knee now, and uh, I'm not as good in karate as I used to be. So I'm writing for my life as opposed to fighting for my life. But it's I all like the same.
0: That. I like it. How's the knee, though? I know you got that knee replacement. That's
1: fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. But, I, I you know, I, I did 10 miles on the bike this morning, but I, I, I still want to get out and jog. I say, you know, I want to do one more marathon, but it's tough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about these two projects, April Showers and January Rain. What is it about projects that deal with mental tragedy or just depression or Alzheimer's. It sounds like you really gravitate towards these debilitating, I don't want to call them diseases. Yeah. But is is there a rhyme or reason for that?
1: Yeah, it's my sensitivities as a special a former special education teacher. That's what kind of got a lot of this out. In terms of January rain, which is about Alzheimer's, two of my close relatives died of Alzheimer's. So I wanted to do something about that. In terms of April Showers, that was a film that came out like 12 years ago. That was about uh, Columbine.
0: Right.
1: And uh, again, it came from the same place. When I taught special ed, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do for a living because I wanted to write but there was a lot of what I experienced that stayed with me. So my sensitivity is kind of built from there. I'm always the guy who fights for the underdog. I'm always the guy who, you know, if 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 an elderly person falls yeah. on the street, I'm the guy that's gonna pick them up. If somebody has an illness of some kind, look, I I've I've seen one, two, three that come to mind, friends, again, close friends that died of cancer and I was in the hospital in their last days and all this stuff. The point is that, again, I think we go around once and I always try to help sometimes to my detriment, but I have to stay true to myself. And I I learned a lot from my parents growing up.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah. I saw videos of you and your dog. (laughs) Yeah. You guys are so close. That dog is human-like. It's amazing how dogs are so intelligent. I have a dog, too, so I get it. And people, whenever I tell them my dog is my baby, they look at me like it's an animal. But, no, that is my baby. But I can tell you're very sensitive towards your dog. I see it. Oh, yeah. Look, look.
1: It's like, you know, uh, let's see. So I had dogs a lot when I was a kid. And we always wound up giving them away. Because we moved from New York to Colorado or this or that or whatever. And it, it was tough at the time. Back then, my parents didn't have much money. And as a kid, you get connected with your dog. You know, that, that's yeah. you know, not a lot of psychology there. Anything gets connected with a dog. So uh, almost 11 years ago, we got Coco, who we named K-O-K-O, our double knockout. Uh, oh, and uh, the thing is, she was going to be euthanized. We rescued her. And she was going to be euthanized because the former owner cut her ears. Mm. They bred her to fight they, she wore like a uh, spike thing around her neck. And she had a tail like this. And nobody would adopt her and they were going to put her to sleep. I'm like, hell no, you're not putting her to sleep. We took her. And they fell in love with her. And she is like a little human being yes. you know, we tried to have kids. It didn't work. We got a dog and our dog is our daughter. So there's that. Oh. But I just love uh, I love dogs. You know, I love dogs. I get along with them better than humans frequently. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I-, I read and correct me if I'm wrong. So you found your soulmate at the age of 36, right? <laughs> now, I'm trying to understand this because as a writer, people always say that it's a lonely life. Yes. Where you're just writing and you're cooped up in the house and you don't talk to anybody did you ever think that you would find that special one as a writer when you first started out and you were,
1: you want to know the interesting timing of your question right now? My wife literally just cracked open the door. She didn't hear this, but it was just the timing as you were saying that to see if I was on the podcast, but uh, yeah, at 36. 36, Uh, Yeah. So yeah, in terms of writing, look, writing writers, artists, are not the easiest people to deal with. They're not. No, because not. we are quirky as hell sometimes. We are. And I think when a writer knows that they're quirky, it helps matters, but it doesn't make things any less lonely sometimes. So I'll give you the, the uh, Reader's Digest condensed version. I'm not a religious Jew, but I am Jewish. And on my 36th birthday, I said to my friend Joe, I said, listen, I swore I'd never do this. And I'm almost embarrassed to ask you, but there's this Jewish singles thing going on tonight at Friday Night Live at Sinai Temple on Wilshire Boulevard. Why don't you join me? He goes, yeah, okay, I'll join you. So I get down there, and I swear to God, there were like 2,000 single Jews there and it's like, this is not my scene. I feel uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. I, want, I want to go back home and go back to my computer and go to sleep. I am like very okay. I'm starting to sweat, and I'm like, "This is 20 years ago." Yeah. And my friend Joe finally arrives, and he goes, Ah, so you, you made it. Thanks for uh, showing up. I don't know if you, I said, "Look, I'm leaving." He goes, what do you mean you're leaving? I said, I'm sorry, Joe. This is not my bag. There are too many people here, and they're single, and, and I just can't do this. He goes, you drag my ass all the way here from Hollywood. You're staying for at least a service, and do whatever the hell you want afterwards. And I said, fine, whatever. So we took a seat inside the chapel, and almost every single last seat is taken, and it seats like 2,000 people. There are a couple of seats left. There's a seat over there, a seat over there and a seat next to me. 10 minutes into the service, this woman comes walking in and takes a seat next to me. Uh-oh. We've been married now for 20-something years. Well, for 20 years. Wow. Yeah, almost 20 years, August 26th.
0: Hold on, but did you know that she was the one? How did you know? Did you just feel something?
1: What happened was, at the end of the night, there was a mixer, and we decided to mix. <laughs> I, I, I turned to my friend joe i said do me a favor and get the fuck out of here okay so he understood where i was coming from yeah. he's like he's like you didn't want me you didn't even want to stay so anyway so we spoke after we had a lot of stuff in common my birthday is january 14th her parents anniversary is january 14th her parents were a certain number of years apart in age we're a certain that same number of years apart in age i was living in glendale all the time she was doing jury duty in glendale that monday all these weird things started happening yeah So you have to know, like, Jewish families. So the next day, because I I made the mistake of telling my parents where I was going the night before, my mother gets on the phone and says, so, did you meet anybody? And I'm like, "Eh." And my mother goes, Richie, he met somebody. So then my mother gets back on the phone and goes, so what's wrong with this one? And I'm like, I don't know. I just met her. Jesus. So the long and the short, like I said, is uh, we got married. You know, we, we oh. kept seeing each other and that's how we met. She literally walked in oh. to the service and took the seat, the open seat right next to me.
0: Beautiful. I love that. I love that. Okay. All right. So I want to close out the interview with this section I call receipts. Okay. And it's where Wait, I, before I you
1: do before you do a plug.
0: Yeah.
1: Ugh. I'm not flashing it. I promise. Oh, you got the convicted vegan. Is that a t-shirt or the hoodie? It's a t shirt. I got the hoodie. My wife's wearing it. Oh,
0: wow. Former
1: guests, Anthony Bucci.
0: What did you think about Anthony Bucci's book?
1: I thought it was brilliant. I'm I'm actually going to contact him after this interview because I'm going to have a clubhouse next week.
0: Oh, nice. Isn't it brilliant? It's a great book.
1: I have it right.
0: right, Yeah, let's pull that up and promote that. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to plug it at the end, but I'm glad you brought it up.
1: But see, this is an example of a guy, and I told him, I said, look, I believe almost everybody deserves a second chance. Yeah. This guy spent 20 some odd years in the federal penitentiary, and he's like a great guy. He is. Go out of your way, everybody, to listen to Lester's interview with Anthony Bucci on this podcast from a few weeks ago. Good stuff.
0: Uh, Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So can't you see his story being on the screen, though?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right? But it doesn't mean it doesn't mean I have a magic wand that can make it happen. I know. But we're, know. But we're gonna talk. You sent me a script. Okay. A script. So you we're, read we're it? Huh? Did you read it? Did you read it? No, I, I I'm gonna have the script done by this weekend. But I read the book. The
0: oh, book nice.
1: Okay. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just no, that's
0: fine. Listen, this is your world. This is your world. I appreciate you being here. It's an honor. So this is the section where we call receipts. This is where I will pull up old post that you made or maybe a quote that you pulled out and we're just going to ask what were you thinking when you pulled it out or what were you thinking when you wrote this or so no it's it's all fun it's all fun (laughs) all right so we're going to start with this one February, february 7 2021 you wrote you can forge a writing career without an agent everyone can In time, hopefully, a good agent will find you, but that's no reason to wait. Develop relationships in the business by chronic networking and staying forward.
1: 115%. (laughs) My head was exactly where my head is now.
0: Right. I love that. That is beautiful because a lot of times people think that you can't do anything without an agent. So I love that you you wrote that. Give me
1: an example. Yeah, Lee Kern was on Writing for Your Life in my room on Face on uh, Clubhouse last week. Lee yeah. Kern is nominated for a Best Writing Award this year, Best Adapted Screenplay for Borat, the new oh, Borat. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, I saw it.
1: He doesn't have an agent or a manager.
0: Oh, I wouldn't have guessed that.
1: Yeah, because if you network your ass off and you get to know producers and this and that and the other, you can do a lot of this yourself, and a good agent will come to you in time but there are agents out there that have no contacts and people don't understand that.
0: Right. Interesting.
1: Not all agents are created equal. It's not just about having an agent. It's about having a good agent.
0: Mm. Well said. All right. Okay. All right. We have another quote here. Since you're a writer, of course you wrote on January 6th, 2021 as a writer, never be afraid to express your politics and or any other aspect of your truth. You'll risk readers perhaps, but you'll also gain trust and respect of those who stick around. I get occasional pushback from saying it, but that's on me. I prefer audacity to cowardice.
1: Yeah. Woo! 100%. I gotta say, man, you, you're re- this is one of the best interviews I've ever had. You are so damn good. Ah, uh, thanks. But no, I agree with that 100%. I think the guy who wrote it was incredibly smart.
0: <laughs> i agree i agree no, that's
1: well, here, here's the thing so you know i'm very politically outspoken and like i said before not everybody is going to like it whatever you know um <laughs> the interesting thing is look i'll be very upfront i i loathe every fiber of donald trump
0: yeah i know i saw I
1: not a fan. Anybody can look me up so they don't think I'm vague booking over here. I'm yeah. just going to come out and say I fucking hate the guy. But uh, the, the, for, for any number of reasons. Now, there are people on this podcast that right there, right at that moment, would turn me off and say, get the hell out of here because maybe they're big Trump fans. But what I've tried to do in my social media is I've tried to kind of bridge the gap and I've always, people always ask, well, why do you have Trump supporters on your page? Well, because I want to have dialogue.
0: Yes. We need to have
1: conversation. Yes. I want to know why. I mean, I don't I, I don't think seventy million people are all racists. Right. But the thing is, I don't for the life of me see why anybody would support the guy. But w- when I speak to people, okay, they they have reasons and some of the reasons to me sound like you know, sound legit. Mm-hmm. That being said, I have friends who are very hardcore Trump supporters who cannot get a job now. And I don't think it's fair my friend kevin sorbo from hercules and i said my friend now we're not close but kevin and i have known each other for 100 years he's to me he said some some things that are beneath the pale being blunt and i've told him this so i'm being totally honest but he shouldn't he thinks the same of me that i've said the same stuff just in reverse there's no way i think his career should end or he should be thrown out of a comic convention because of his or his manager should fire him because of his politics. All of which has happened. He's doing smaller movies now, but his manager fired him. His, um, you know, he has a hard time getting legitimate work. And this goes for a lot of, you know, actors who have been Trump supporters. Again, I don't feel sorry for anybody, in the sense that I can't stand Donald Trump, and I think anybody who supports him is supporting other things as well whether they think they are or think they're not. But that being said, I don't think anybody should lose a living based on their political beliefs. And when Kevin was thrown out of a comic book convention years ago, they, they unbooked him. I wrote about it. I said, I don't agree with anything politically that Kevin says, but I'd fight for the end's teeth for him to still be able to make a living. So at the end of the day, it's a risk. You risk readerships. I risk people here right now, but that's just the way it is, because you know what? To me, truth tellers are the people who who make it and move forward and influence and inspire. And I always encourage people to be honest and tell their own truth. You're never going to please everybody. You're never going to please everybody. You're never happy. Yeah,
0: I saw a video you posted on Facebook <laughs> where you said, I got this knee replacement and we got this crazy guy running the government. You're talking about Trump. And you like, I'm just not in a good mood at all. I don't know if you remember that video, but I was cracking up because.
1: <laughs> you were too good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that video though? I don't, but it's don't. okay. It was on Facebook.
0: It was on Facebook, but I just thought it was funny.
1: That's funny.
0: Yeah, yes. All right, here's another thing that you wrote. This was, well, this is a quote that you pulled and you quoted somebody on December 25th, 2020. You said, well, you quoted, be strong enough, to stand alone, smart enough to know when you need help and brave enough to ask for it.
1: That's powerful. Yeah, it is. I wish I remembered. Right. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's why I posted it. I, that was <laughs> my head at that moment. Well, same where it is now. I'm, 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 I, I always try to be consistent, you know? So, you, you know, are there things I've said over the years that I regret? Probably. Um, But I'm not going to try to take them back because that was my truth at the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Am I going to regret anything I said on this interview? No. In five years, will I regret anything? Will I feel that I came across too hard on Trump's work? I doubt it. Because as long as I try to stay open, I'm able to live with myself.
0: Absolutely. And I always
1: want to engage and I always want to talk.
0: Yeah. You, you definitely have a gift for that because you know so many people. I just watch you on Clubhouse and it's amazing how many people you're able to just pull in to this net, if you will. I don't know how you do it. I really don't.
1: Networking. Yeah, I have, I have a networking. I have a return appearance today. Antoine Fisher is coming back at three o'clock.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, I noticed you interviewed him. You interviewed him before.
1: Yeah, this is the the second time someone's come back for like an encore.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about a couple of your guests. Let's talk about Joey Pants. You had him on your show. Joey Pants yeah. is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Lou Lou Phillips. Then. I'm sorry, guy.
1: Lou Diamond Phillips. Yeah. 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 No, I, Joey Pants I, is great. Joey Pants is an actor who who has had issues with depression. He's very open about it, and he has a podcast. Lou Diamond Phillips has a real interesting background, and is an very well. He's very well spoken and gave great advice to some of the listeners. And we have, you know, novelists and actors, um, agents, celebrities, execs and so forth and so on. We've had so many tremendous guests and again after a while they asked me. And I just started this room like literally little over 2 months ago and as of yesterday it was like 13,100 members and followers together.
0: Wow. So we're
1: Congrats. doing something right.
0: Yeah. Um, all right, so I'm gonna ask you maybe three more questions. Mm-hmm. So first question is: What does the term "Peter Pan" mean to you?
1: You never lose your innocence. Ooh! Did they call you Peter Pan? My wife does.
0: <laughs> I was get—I was trying to get you to say it. I was like, "Why is he not <laughs> owning wife, up to
1: it?" My wife does. Um, she, uh, you know. You're such a dreamer. I'm like, yeah, you're so Peter Pitt. Yeah.
0: Aww. Because
1: I still have all my dreams I had when I was 20 and I have a resume now and I've written books and over a thousand articles and screenplays and movies and TV and all the stuff. And I'm just thinking about all the stuff that I have to do over the next 30 years.
0: Wow. I love it. All right. Since we started with wrestling, it's only right that we finish with wow. wrestling. All right. So, Who is the best? I'm going to give you some options. Who's the best professional wrestling manager? All right. Jim Cornette. (laughs) 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 I'm taking it back. Jim Cornette, Jimmy Hart, Bobby the Brain Heenan, or J.J. Dillon?
1: Bobby the Brain Heenan.
0: Bobby the Brain. Really? I thought you would say J.J. Dillon because I thought you liked Ric Flair.
1: I do like Ric Flair. Now, I was a Four Horsemen fan. But Bobby Heenan cracked me up. J.J. was very straight. I met J.J. for the first time, actually, a year and a half ago at the Cauliflower Alley Club. Oh, wow. Which is an organi- a charitable organization run by Brian Blair. I don't know if you remember him from the Killer Bees from back in the 80s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and J.J. Was, seemed like a nice guy. Very straightforward and stuff like this. He's a good guy to talk to. But, no, Bobby Heenan always cracked me up.
0: Bobby Heenan. Okay. All right. Who – well, I guess you already answered this, but – this is a question that I had. Who's the best professional trash talker? The Rock, Stone Cold, Ric Flair, or Hulk Hogan?
1: But you said... Oh, take Hogan out of that picture. Really? Oh, take Hogan out of that Hogan's not a trash talker.
0: <laughs> Hogan. He was great uh, on the microphone, though. I guess when I say trash talker, I mean just somebody who was just... Who
1: can cut promos and stuff. Yeah. Right. So since you didn't put Piper in there, you said Flair, The Rock.
0: Yeah, I've said Flair, The Rock, Stone Cold, Stone Cold. and Hulk Hogan.
1: Uh I I would have to put uh I have to put the rock.
0: The rock. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. the rock gets that one.
0: Okay, all right. <laughs> all
1: right just, by the way, I just watched uh and Hobbs for the first time or Hobbs and Shaw whatever that movie was called for the first oh, time. Oh yeah, watched, how was it? Hobbs and Shaw, whatever. I thought it was great. It was hyster- hilarious. I hadn't seen it before. I really liked it. Okay. All
0: right, I might have to just check
1: that it. out with the rock. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, I might have to check that out. All right, Dean who Malenco. is the the most technical wrestler? Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, Barry Windham or Mr. Perfect? Wow.
1: <laughs> I'm taking it back. Wow. Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect, Chris Benoit, Barry Windham. Barry Windham. Okay, let's take Barry Windham out. What? No, he was great. He was a great he was my favorite of the four horsemen. Oh,
0: guy. Okay. All right.
1: But uh, I would still take him out of that equation. Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit. Or oh, Mr. Perfect.
0: Or Mr.
1: Perfect. Uh, Perfect. I would I would uh, you, you know uh, uh, let's just say Mr. Perfect.
0: All right, cool. I love Mr. Perfect. Part of me
1: part of me was leaning towards Benoit, but so
0: tough. Yeah.
1: To put him in any kind of yeah 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 all right last two go questions.
0: Go last two all right who was the wrestler who was the best professional actor the rock john cena or batista the rock the rock yeah that yeah. was the easy one yeah yeah
1: and although Batista's very good i think batista cool. is he is
0: he's yeah, coming yeah. along all right the last question if given the opportunity which wrestler Would you like to write a screenplay for
1: and why? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm laughing because it's actually an easy answer for me. It is? It is, but I don't know if you're familiar with the Von Erich family. Of course. Kevin Von Erich, Kerry Von Erich, Chris Von Erich. No, David Von Erich. now what happened was there's this family, wrestling family. Yeah. uh, There were five sons. Three of them, I'm sorry, five sons, four of them went into wrestling. The first son died at five years old of an electrocution. Three of the four that went into professional wrestling died of a suicide. Oh. And there's one survivor and now his kids are going, are involved pretty heavily in wrestling. Um, there's always been something there because a the family was a born-again Christian family, very religious. They had a fan base like nobody's business in Texas. And then one after another, not only did the brothers start dying, but most of the other, a lot of the other big-time wrestlers in the organization started dying, drug overdoses. Oh, wow. So, so. I don't mean to be so dark and black and bleak <laughs> and everything else, but you already mentioned that I'm that guy. No, so, all right. So I, I I'd spoken to Kevin, the surviving son, a few times a couple of years ago about doing a book. Oh, and uh, it didn't go because Vince McMahon had certain rights and stuff like this at the time. But that, there's something to me to still today about that family that I would like to write about and make it different than the other documentaries and things that are out there.
0: Oh, nice. I've heard of it. I've heard of them, yeah.
1: By the way, if you watch, I think, I don't know if it's tonight. It may be tonight, Dark Side of the Ring Confidential on vice tv i think they may be doing the von eric's tonight
0: oh really okay
1: I, I think i think don't quote me enough i'm I, 60 70 percent sure that they're doing the Von eric's tonight but there's uh, always something about that tragedy the whole the whole family family yeah. tragedy that's something that i i've always wanted to do justice uh, yeah
0: it reminds me what about doing something on the hart family you know like bret hart and owen hart and
1: yeah, you know it's funny. I just watched a documentary of the Montreal job again a few days ago. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. No. Yeah.
0: That's kind of interesting too. That
1: it's very interesting, but you know what? It, it's almost like, you know, it's it, it's sad in a way. But I mean, it's it's. I would want. I would still. If I'm going to do a wrestling tragedy, I would want it to be on the Monarchs because. Mm-hmm know kevin the survivor had one saying i've always been very close to my family and he said once upon a time i had five brothers now i'm not a four brothers now i'm not even a brother and there's something so family in that whole tragedy that it's yeah i mean look the hard stuff is very interesting but writing about it for some reason no yeah
0: okay all right, well, Mr. Joel Eisenberg, how can people follow you and stay in touch with you? I know you're on social media.
1: All right, so you Google "pain in the ass" in the subject. <laughs> of-
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, Writing for Your Life. Um, TikTok. Anywhere TikTok? No.
0: No, not you. Got to get on TikTok. I think you know, Great.
1: I didn't even want to do Clubhouse. <laughs> I really didn't. And a friend of mine's like, "You got to do." Club-. I'm like, "I'm already on Facebook and all How many more of these things do I need?" Right. Well, Clubhouse, I adapted to, and I like that it's audio only and stuff like this. But no, I'm, TikTok and no. you know, schmick Schmuck and all the rest. I, I just, <laughs> it, I could do right without that. it. I could, I could do without it.
0: All right. Okay. All right, Joel. Thank you so much for being out on the front lines. It has been a pleasure.
1: This is awesome. You're one of the best interviewers I've ever spoken to. You really did your stuff. Uh,
0: Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. An honor. Thank you so much.
1: This is a blast. So thank you again for the invite. And everybody listen to this guy. He's great.
0: All right. Thank you so much.